worthy of our highest praise today. Let's pray and worship Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this day. Lord, we thank You, Lord God, that You made this day, God. We rejoice in it this morning as we come to Your house, Lord God, to honor You, to worship You, Lord. We invite Your presence this morning. God, that You would fill this place with Your presence today, that You would minister to hearts today, that You would be glorified this morning, Lord, as we lift up Your name, the name that's above every name, Lord God. And this morning, Father, we thank You, Lord, that You're faithful and we stand, Lord God, on Your promises today. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in I will shout and
thank you and praise you for your amazing grace that found us, sought us out, woke us up, and brought us to the bleeding side of Calvary. We thank you for your grace that drew us into yourself, that opened our eyes to your truth and your reality. Your grace that enabled us to receive forgiveness and transformation. Your grace that began this good work and your grace that will continue your good work in our life till we see you face to face. We thank you for your grace. Your grace to stand. Your grace to fight the good fight. Your grace to overcome the things that would try to ensnare us and entangle us and keep us down. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that never, never ceases to amaze us. We give you praise for it. And all God's people said, let's give the Lord a hand clap. He's worthy and He's wonderful. And we love Him. Hallelujah. 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 Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would go to 1 Kings 18, verse 20, we've got a good group of verses to read. Because we've got a good story to tell. But we're going to talk about the day the fire fell. You know we've been in a series of sermons from the life of that fiery prophet Elijah. And the fire is going to fall. And, um, but we want to get the whole story. So if you would, 1 Kings 18, beginning with verse 20. And so King Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people. And he said, how long will you dance or waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, we'll follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. People said it was good. So verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls. Prepare it first, since there's so many of you. And then call in the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull and gave took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around that altar really hard. They jumped up and down. And, and, and you know, nothing happened. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. I mean, he's a god after all. Maybe he's in deep thought or he's out having a vacation. Maybe he's napping on the couch um, and you got to wake him up. And so verse 28 said, They shouted even louder, and they cut themselves with swords and spears as their custom was until the blood flowed. And well, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And it doesn't surprise us, right? I mean, their God is dead. Of course, they don't get an answer. But now verse 30, and these are the... Verses we will really focus on today. Then Elijah said to the, all the people, come here. They came and he repaired, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Well, I get things right, got to repair that altar. Get God where he belongs. And they repaired that altar. Now, verse 31, then Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes to send it from Jacob and 
to whom the word of the Lord had come, and he said, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough for about four gallons of water. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said, Fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering, pour it on the wood, do it again, do it again, do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and water ran all around the altar. Filled the trench. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, they licked up the water in the trench. And all the people saw this. They fell on their face and cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Can you say amen? Wow. Well, let's, let's glean some thoughts here. Obviously, we're preaching from the life of Elijah. And if you've been with us, we've all grown familiar with this man's story in a very spiritually dark time in a moral midnight brought about by a succession of bad kings and false corrupt priests and prophets topped off by the most wicked king of all, King Ahab and his infamous queen Jezebel. Elijah the prophet comes out of seemingly nowhere and he confronts his evil duel with the word of the Lord, the word of judgment. There'll be no rain, there'll be a drought on the land because you've disobeyed God, you've broken covenant with God, you've gone to idols and worshipped them. So now after three years of this drought of no rain of God's um, chastising hand, it's time for God's servant to once again confront the corrupt monarchy, the false prophets once and for all. And so all of Elijah's life, as we've studied, has really been to bring him to this point. God has prepared him for this through, through dealings and through preparations, through um, working in his life and teaching him how to trust God and teaching him how to be led by the Word and the Spirit of God. This was to be a meeting that would turn the hearts of God's wayward children back to Himself. This would be a meeting that would prove ultimately once and for all that the Lord was the true and living God. And so last week we began and we started out the call to Mount Carmel, the call to Mount Carmel. And underneath the call, we said there's two things we noted. Number one was the compassion of God's heart. And number two was the courage of God's prophet. The compassion of God's heart. Because you see, God initiated this revival. It was God that, um, that, that, that took the first step in reaching out to His strange people. All that chastisement didn't even sink in. All that judgment they didn't even think about. Maybe we need to repent and get things right with God. Maybe there's a reason why things aren't working out. They didn't. But God in His compassion reached out to them. I'm so glad that the God we serve is not willing that any should perish. I'm so glad that it's as if He says, if you won't seek Me, I'll still seek you. And you see the evangelist heart of God reaching out to those that aren't even looking for Him. And here He calls to His people when they weren't even calling out to Him. And we notice that the God we serve, He does confront, He does convict, and He deals because of His great love and compassion. But He's not willing that any should perish. And as if He's saying to people, you're going the wrong way. It's time to turn things around. And that's the mercy and that's the grace of God. And we thank God for that today. That He didn't just leave us to waver in our false thinking. He didn't just leave us to go down the road that we thought was right. But now that we know the Bible, we understand it was wrong. But it's in the mercy of God that He doesn't leave us alone. It's the grace of God that He does deal with the human heart. 
that He does cause circumstances to come in our lives that at times we think are harsh, but if they turn us back to God, they're worth everything. This is the great God that sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross for unworthy, unlovely men and women that at that time didn't even want Him, but God so loved the world that He gave so He could redeem and have a people He longs to see. The wayward awakened and the rebel restored and the fallen and broken returned back to health and strength. And I thank God this morning that the Almighty is reaching out to you and reaching out to me. And I encourage someone, if you're not where you need to be, respond to the Lord. Don't reject or make fun of the grace of God. Instead, come to Him, make things right with Him, and be the one you were created to be. But secondly, we notice the courage of God's prophet. Not only the compassion of God's heart and this calling, is gathering of the people, but the courage of God's prophet because it took great courage for Elijah to, um, to do this. He's the most wanted man in that kingdom and all the other kingdoms around. And again, it takes moral courage for the true believer to live for Jesus Christ. To choose the narrow way of God and of the Bible as opposed to the broad way of society where everyone does what's right in their own eyes and justifies the rest. It does take a moral courage if we're going to be like Elijah in this present hour, and stand apart from the sinful, and stand apart from that which is corrupt in the eyes of God, and boldly stand for the Lord Jesus, and stand for the Gospel, and stand for the morality that the Scripture describes and instructs. So number one, there's the call to Mount Carmel. But then we um, we touched on the challenge to the people. And it was short, it was direct, it was pretty much in verse 21, choose and change. He says, how long are you going to dance between two opinions or two ways of living? God won't deal with that. God won't allow you to worship Him, then do your own thing. Choose this day who you will serve. And we see this. And we mention that um, God calls men and women to choose who they will serve and how they will live. We mentioned the ever so popular religion of convenience that is so 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 prevalent and so popular in the world that we live, especially in such a Bible um, um, area. The religion of convenience, not never an all-out denial of Christ, not an outright denial of Jesus, but a moral mixture type of lifestyle. Most of the people there, they, they'd worship the Lord. They wouldn't deny Him. That's how they were raised. But they'd also worship Baal when it was convenient or living for the Lord was too challenging. And they had this mixture going back and forth. And we see that today. When living for Christ is uncomfortable or inconvenient or out of step with the way they want to live, then they just simply, um, they simply just ignore Him and do their own thing. But God is not pleased when men serve a God of convenience. For He sent His only begotten Son and shed that blood and endured the wrath our sins deserved. And He deserves so much better from men. He deserves and requires so much more from us. So the Scripture teaches us in verse 21, this applies to the here and now, God wants all of us. God desires that all men make a choice. Who will you serve? But you can't serve both. Serve the Lord. And so here we have the challenge to the people. And then finally, we begin this morning with the confrontation with Baal. The confrontation with Baal. Now, good things, great things, in fact, are about to happen in our story. God is about to reclaim and revive His people. The fire from heaven is about to fall and lick up the sacrifice. But from the human perspective, 
This incident revolves really around one dedicated life. And this is important. We said from the beginning, the very first message, God is looking for Elijah's today. God's looking for men and women today that He can use to be His voice, to stand courageously for Him in such an hour of corruption and confusion in the land. The life of Elijah. Never underestimate the power of one totally dedicated life and you can be that life. I'll say it again. Never underestimate how God can use a life, a sold-out life for Christ. In fact, the power to change your Heritage to change, um, what's the word? The generations of literally a hundred years from now, the power to affect them is within your desire and decision and dedication to Christ. Those of us that can look back and say we're third or fourth generation believers, we can look back literally a hundred years from now to the first great-great-grandparent or someone of the sorts that came out of false religion, that came out of heathenism 101 and really found God and really walked with God. And they can trace, if they could look forward, they could trace a hundred or plus years from that time they made that real firm decision to follow Christ and the effects of that decision are standing before you this day. You don't realize the power you have when you make a firm decision, I'm going to serve Jesus all out and wholeheartedly, no excuses and no regrets. You don't realize that within your ability to make that decision, you have the power to affect your generation literally a hundred, two hundred years from today. Never underestimate the power of one dedicated life. Our lesson God will use us if we let Him. And if we offer ourselves to God, God will use you in amazing ways. You'll be gone from the scene for a hundred years, but the decisions you make will have a positive effect on those that follow after you. Elijah was a man all alone. He was greatly outnumbered. He's facing a hostile king and queen. He has um, a hundred or so, hundreds and hundreds of false priests and prophets that are standing against him. Countless numbers of unbelieving Israelites, yet all of them, all of them are silenced by this one dedicated man of God. I'll say it again. Never limit the power and the potential of one sold-out saint. Never limit the power or the potential of one sold-out saint. Somebody get sold out. Somebody don't straddle the fence. Give God your all. Don't be ashamed to say you love Jesus. You're going to serve Jesus. And if it ruffles feathers, let it ruffle. But serve the Lord and let God use your life in a marvelous way. If someone's listening and you're in that place of decision, you're in that moment maybe of wavering in your obedience, should I or couldn't I, let me encourage you this morning, go for it. Give God your all. Just go ahead and live all out for Jesus. Step out. Obey the Lord. Believe His promise. Dare to be different. Give God your all. For who knows how and what God will do through your life when you yield it and when you give it wholeheartedly to the Lord. Can you say amen? Somebody obey the Lord and watch Him work His wonders in and through your life. Now this story will obviously fuel our faith. But it also shows us some things from heaven's perspective. And I'll just give you one quick quick thought before we get into the main story. We learn from this, or we can easily see from this story, the foolishness of believing that all religions are the same. Obviously God didn't think so. Obviously when we read this story, it's pretty easy to see. God doesn't think that way, does He? In fact, it matters what and in who you believe. The Bible, friend, can't be clearer. 
So please, don't, don't let anyone fool you. All roads do not lead to heaven. We'd never have this story if you could just do whatever. But there's one God. And He calls all to serve Him only. Friend, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only Savior. He's the only Redeemer. He's the only Mediator between a lost world and a holy, holy, holy God. And friend, it's more than just having faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. You've got to have your faith in the right one. Have your faith in the one that died for you and rose again. Have your faith in the one that shed His blood that you could be forgiven and you could know your home will be one day in heaven. Put your faith in the one that one day everyone will stand before. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you'll never be sorry you did. Now, here's our story. The prophets of Baal. Man, they, they, they yelled for hours, hours. They jumped, did a cartwheel, prophesied. If you didn't know your Bible, they'd think they're Pentecostal. But if you know your Bible, you, you know that not all that shouting is always God. <laughs> oh, say amen, say ouch. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to it. Let's get back. There's a lot of emotion there, but emotion don't always mean it's God. You gotta, you gotta examine that emotion by what is written, what is written, what is written. Amen. Again, they're jumping up and down. They're cutting themselves. They're prophesying. There's a lot of times that prophesying, that, that's not God either. You've got to know your Bible so you can judge that thing. Amen? Judge that prophecy. You better to listen to it, then judge it. Judge it by that word. They cut them. Nothing happened. And we said earlier, it's not surprising. Their God's dead. I mean, you can yell to that wall as long as you want, man. You, you can yell, fall down, get back up. The wall can't answer you. It's dead. Their God was dead, and Elijah mocked them. <laughs> and the people just watched. The people just watched. See, all this, a lot of times, religious activity and enthusiasm aren't always signs of spirituality. Some people can be sincere but not accurate. They can have a zeal but not according to knowledge. It's good to know your Bible, is it not? Then you can measure because enthusiasm for the Lord is great. Energy and passion for Jesus is proper. But, oh, a lot of times people, they just got a lot of emotion, but it's not in line with thus saith the Lord. All right. But now, listen, now it's Elijah's turn. This is important for us. And if I wanted to step on toes, I'd say, look out, Pentecostal church. Because we tend to get too political, and we start being like these, I don't mention the radio announcers that so many people love and probably listen to more than their Bibles. But we just become critics of everything. We're not shining a whole lot of light. We're not being as faithful to God's house as we should be. But, man, we can criticize anything that happens out there. Well, understand that after a while that um, you can laugh at Baal and you can mock Baal, but sooner or later you're supposed to call some fire down. Sooner or later, the people of God need to produce the works of God and carry out the Word of God. Anybody getting an amen somewhere? It's more than just criticizing the bad, and there's enough bad that we could all make a career out of that. Amen? It's more than just pointing out what's frustrating. That's nice you point it out. But sooner or later, the man of God's got to call fire down. Sooner or later, the world that's watching says, well, that's good that you can criticize them, but what do you have that's any different? What do you have to offer? Now it's Elijah's turn. And this is a challenge for all of us. There must be more than a cursing of the darkness and a pointing out of everything that's wrong. It's not enough to mock Baal. He's got to bring the fire down. He's got to produce life. He's got to present God's truth. He's got to practice God's acts. 
You see, the church must be involved in healing the hurt, not just pointing out what's wrong. His motive, again, let's not forget to glorify God and to bring the wayward people of God back to where they belong. Now, the day the fire fell gives us many principles here to bring us closer to God individually and corporately. It gives us principles for positive change. It gives us principles, again, to have a personal or family revival. A revival doesn't always have to mean a community. Your family can have a revival. You can have a revival. There's principles here of corporate visitation. And really, there's principles here. Because remember our context, we would, we would apply it thousands of years later to the backslider and to those that once knew God and are now strayed from God. We see principles here of how lives can come back to a lasting, lasting and growing relationship with the Lord. Number one, let's start out with verse 30. Elijah repaired the broken altar of the Lord. Verse 30, Elijah said to the people, Come here. They came and he repaired the altar of the Lord which was in ruins. When you leave God, that altar gets broken down. Let's look at this. You know, in the Old Testament, the the altar was a sign of, of worship on the part of God's people. It was where there would be the sacrifice and the offering. And it's a symbol of relationship and covenant between God and between Israel. It's coming to God in His prescribed manner. Humbling and surrendering and yielding oneself. Offering the proper sacrifice to God. And from there, from that act of obedience and humility and surrender, from there is the approval of God and the acceptance of God for our worship, for our walk, and for our witness. The smile of God. But now the altar is broken down, the Bible says. And it wasn't broken down by a foreign enemy that came in, but by the people that it was meant to bless and benefit and distinguish the most. Instead of using the altar, they destroyed it by neglect and by ignorance. They didn't take advantage of the glorious privilege they had to meet with the living God in the way He prescribed to honor Him and enjoy the blessing and smile of heaven that comes to those that do. But to us that walk with God, The altar speaks of our relationship with God, our surrender, our commitment, our devotion. It speaks of our worship. It speaks of our prayer life. It speaks of that continual, consistent dedication. So as believers, as Christians, we have the privilege of drawing near to the living God, of communing with Him, of worshiping Him, of praying. All this was made possible through the blood of Jesus. All is made possible because Jesus died for us and He tore that veil. And now we can come boldly to that throne of grace, which means come confidently because the blood was shed and now you and I that were far away from God have been restored and reconciled through the blood of Jesus. Once we were slaves and strangers, now we are sons and princes before God. And we can come and enjoy the presence of God. And I want you to know, friends, the devil fears ours. The devil fears your prayers. A life that meets with God. I mean, a life that really walks close to God. That feeds on the Word of God. That allows the fire of God's Spirit, a daily opportunity to work in us and through us. Hell fears what you can be and what you can do as a result of meeting with God consistently and daily. 
allowing the presence of God and allowing the Word of God to transform a life and to harness a life and to empower a life and to use a life. Don't neglect your altar. Let there be no doubt that God wants to work on our behalf, that God desires to send His fire down and work in lives and through lives. But when the altar is broken, whether it's through neglect or whether it's through ignorance or whether it's through indifference or apathy, God can't and God won't. There's no altar means there's no real commitment. No altar means there's no communion, there's no dedication, there's no surrender. There's no sacrifice of our lives. We're that sacrifice, the living sacrifice. Jesus gave the great sacrifice, and we that love Him respond as we offer ourselves to Him as that living sacrifice. We bring ourselves to Him and we create that altar. But where there's no sacrifice, no offering, there is no fire. So the starting point, the beginning point for the people of God to return The beginning point to see God once again move in His fullness and His power. The starting point to see a Christian life that will not just be a weak, anemic, sometimes you wonder, are they really got it, but a strong, healthy, vibrant life. It starts with the altar of your life. The starting point, Elijah, verse 30, repaired the altar. Here's the key. They returned and He repaired the altar. Now, if we're going to repair an altar, two things very important. Along with repairing that altar, there has got to be a removing and a rearranging. If you're going to create an altar and a walk with God that lasts, not just one that is moved by emotion every couple of years, but one that is consistent and growing and maturing and bearing fruit, there has to be a proper altar. If that altar has been destroyed by any reason whatsoever, there has to be a restoring and a rebuilding of that altar. In order to restore it, there must be a removing of some things and a rearranging of many things. We ask the question because, again, the context of the story would be like we talk about a backslider. Because the people had left. And now they're coming back. And we ask ourselves this morning... Concerning the backslider, why do some make it and others just don't seem? Why is it that some, and I'm thinking the second service, there are some that, that, that had left God for 10, 15 years. They grew up in it and left God, but then somewhere in their 30s they woke up. And now they're serving God for a decade and plus, and they're strong, and their families and their marriages are blessed. What was it about them that made it last? And so many that we know that, good Lord, For 30, 40 years, you know it didn't last. Every now and again, there's remorse, there's regret, there's I feel bad because I messed up again, but there's never really a consistency and a maturity and a reality that says, yeah, they met with God and they walk with God now. What's the difference? I'm going to give you a hint. Most often, they have never removed and rearranged to build a proper altar in their life. There must be more to come strong with God and to return to the Lord. There must be more than remorse and regret and even the acknowledgement that I messed up and I'm not where I need to be. There must be a repairing of the altar and a restoring of that relationship. And that demands removing and rearranging. Removing purity. Rearranging priority. The purity and the priority of a life has to be changed or you won't last. You won't last. Don't last. If you've ever fallen away from God and you know now you've been strong for many years, you had to remove some things and you had to rearrange some things. 
We have to ask ourselves, what quenches the fire in my life? What hinders the consistency in my life? Got to remove some things. Because while you were away, some things got into your life. While you were away, some things got into your thinking, into your emotions, into your affections. Some things tagged on to you. And to come back, they're incompatible with walking with God. That's why you can't just come to God and keep all the junk. It sounds sweet, but it don't work. They never last. But you're trying to bring to the altar of God that which is incompatible with communion with God. So when someone gets serious with God, there has to be a removal of some things. Things that have latched on to you. Things that have attached themselves to you while you're away doing your own thing in the faraway land. But then there also has to be a rearranging of things. Because while you're out there doing your things, life got out of order, out of alignment. And if you don't get things in alignment, things will never go long. You can get new tires. If you don't fix the alignment, it's not long. You're going to just, it's going to drift again. We ask ourselves, if you're not where you need to be with God, ask yourselves, what quenches the fire in my life? I mean, just mentally ask yourself. Write it down and deal with it. Get it out. Ask yourselves, what hinders my consistency for the Lord? What, um, what stops my momentum? Every time I start getting some momentum in serving Jesus, what knocks me off course and keeps me from really... What might be in my life that's incompatible with walking close to this God? You see, we remove things that we've brought into our life and then we rearrange things that have become more important to us while we're away in ignoring God. And I'll say it again. Some of you know exactly what I mean. To some within the sound of my voice, you left God for a number of years, decades. Maybe you grew up in it. Then finally you woke up one day. And those that are really strong with God today, you wouldn't be strong today if you didn't remove many things that you got into and you didn't rearrange your life and start changing the purity and the priority of one's life. We have to rebuild the altar. And the altar is the key. Whether you're a good Christian right now and you've been walking with God, if you want to stay strong with God, you practice your altar. You meet with God. You practice a good devotion life. You keep the fire burning on the heart and in your faith. But if you're not where you need to be with God, then it starts with a fresh return to God. But that return will not last if it's merely just an emotional, I feel guilty, I want God's help. Unless you take some practical steps to remove some things, that quench the fire, that kill the momentum, that are trying to drag you down, and you rearrange some things so God's divine order is in your life, then the blessing can flow, and you can flow, and you can be consistent and grow stronger than you've ever been. Somebody say amen. amen. Number one, repairs the altar. Number two, in verse 31, he reviews what God has done. Look at verse 31. It says, he took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, And he reminds them of their name. This is God's encouragement to the people. He's encouraged them and reminding them, I I haven't forgotten you. And I want to remind you of how things used to be. He reminds someone that somehow might not think they can return. That he says, no, you can return. And you can come back to that place of spiritual health and victory and consistency if you want to. He builds an altar with 12 stones. Those 12 stones represented the tribes of Israel. It's a visual aid reminding them as a nation of their birth and of their blessing and of their name, of their uniqueness, 
of their calling, of their divine choosing, of their, of their heavenly purpose that they had. And he uses this to point them back to their history. As if he's saying, do you remember when you walked with me? Do you remember when you made that sacrifice and my smile was upon your life? When you gave me that proper place and I blessed the works of your hand and I used you? Do you remember when you had that joy of your salvation? And there was a peace and there was an expectation of faith. Do you remember when you were excited when you came to my house? Do you remember when you were enthusiastic when it came time to praise my holy name? Do you remember when you had a hunger for my word and you couldn't wait to study and hear what I had to say to you? Do you remember what it was when I used to use you and when you were bold for me and you weren't ashamed of me? Well, God says, I'm willing to do it again if you let me. Builds an altar, reminding the people, though you've forsaken him, he hadn't forsaken you. You forgot him, he had the altar. Those stones spoke of each tribe, the tribes that he redeemed from Egypt, the tribes that he gave that glorious name, Israel, Prince with God. And he reminds them, as you used to walk with me, you can walk with me again. Remember where I brought you from and remember what I've done for you. And if you're willing to come back and make that altar and make that fresh devotion, you can have it again and you can walk in it again. He repairs the altar and then he reviews what God had done. He encourages them. You can, you can. The devil is a liar. You might have messed up and been away from God for the last 20 years, but if you'll make things right and really get serious with God, if you'll come and repent and you'll let God begin to restore your life, if you'll remove what needs to be removed, and you'll rearrange those things, God says, I'll walk with you. I'll empower you. I'll anoint you. And I'll use you once again. Number three, he rekindles faith in a supernatural God. And you see verses 36-39. Back in those days, the, the, the priests, there was a lot of tricks. And even today, if you go to foreign countries that have idols and all that, there's certain tricks the priests can use. You put a little flint under there, and you, you, when you're jumping up and down to all that dancing, you can hit it and the fire comes up. There's tricks. There's tricks. Those false priests and those voodoo stuff, there's tricks to all that, you know. And so Elijah's going to make sure this is God. Drowse the whole thing. God, God don't need any tricks. How many know that? When God does it, you healed. You're healed when God does it. Amen. You don't have to play no games. God don't. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need man shenanigans or anything like that. God is God. And so Elijah says, "We're going to drowse it, man. We'll just dump a water on it. Just just put water all over it. Because when this God answers by fire, He answers by fire. Amen." And he's rekindling faith in a supernatural God. Why keep serving a God that can't answer cries and a God that can't bring you through? Why serve a God that's false and will fail you every time? Serve the living God. You know, and then here, here he soaks everything down so that all would know this was a real miracle of God. And why never know our God can? What others can't, what others say there is no hope, our God can. Our God can save to the uttermost and our God can heal. Whether it's physical, emotional, mental. Our God can set prisoners free and break heavinesses to try to bow people down and control people's lives. 
Our God can move any mountain. Our God can meet any need. Our God can mend any brokenness. Our God, our God, He's able. He is able. We can water it down, but our God still answers by fire. Men can mock Him, but He lives. Men can abuse Him, but He lives. Jesus Christ is alive today. Jesus, here's your cry today. Jesus is able to meet your need today. There is one, and His name is Jesus. The grave couldn't hold Him, and death couldn't keep Him, and He's alive today with all power and authority. And whatever your need is, if you'll call Him the name that's above every name, He is able to meet that need. He's able to move that mountain. He's able to heal that hurt. He's able to restore that life. He's able to work in you. If you mean business with God, God will mean business with you. Somebody say Amen. He rekindles faith in a supernatural God. He prays and God answers and the fire fell. Burned up everything. I mean, it burned up the rocks, man. It burned up everything. He prays and God answers. The fire fell, burned up everything. And the people responded, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Every generation needs a fresh experience and demonstration of the power of God. Because after a while, the stories of yesteryear get a little hollow and get a little, get a little weak. And every generation needs a fresh encounter. He is alive. Now, let's not miss the symbolism here. The fire of God is a picture of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of men. It's a picture of the working of God's Holy Spirit. The fire consumed the sacrifice, turned the hearts, it ignited a revival. You see, in the Bible, there's about 11 titles and about 10 symbols for the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's, there, there's dove and water and wind and oil. There's rain. Amen. And, and of course, there's fire. There's fire. There's seal. There's an earnest. And, and, and there's fire. And, and it's symbols. It helps us to understand how the Holy Spirit works and functions in our lives. The symbols help communicate to us. How the Spirit of God desires to produce and prompt and promote and work in our lives. So like what a fire does in the natural realm, the Holy Spirit does in a spiritual realm. And when you and I are filled and you and I are strong in the Spirit, well, we're not quenching, not grieving. Well, I want you to note four things that the Holy Spirit will do for you. Four things that the Holy Spirit, like a natural fire, the Holy Spirit fire, does in the lives of the believers. Number one, the Holy Spirit purifies lives, just like fire. You know, fire consumes things. Fire refines things. Fire burns up things. One of the ways to really cleanse something is through fire. The Holy Spirit purifies. You remember John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me. He's so wonderful. He's so awesome. He's so powerful. I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie or tie his shoe. But when he comes, now all I can do, John said, is baptize you in water. That's all I can do. But when he comes, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he goes on to say, he's winnowing fork is in his hand and he burns up the chaff with that fire, that which is impure, that which is incompatible, that which doesn't belong with that which is right. He'll burn it up. One of the things the Holy Spirit does in us, he, it burns up the junk. Gets rid of some debris. Amen? It, it, you know, it's good to be clean and pure. Anybody? The Holy Spirit purifies and refines our lives. When we draw near and spend time 
in that holy presence, there's a cleansing power of God that works in us. We confess our sins and He consumes that junk, removes it, leaves us clean, free from debris. There's a light feeling on the inside when there's no condemnation. And you know the fire of God has made you clean. And I can remember reading some years ago how, how the benefits of, of, of natural fire, brush fires and, um, and forest fires, actually they have a beneficial effect to nature. And the fire comes through. The, the writers would say they would take away all the debris and everything that was dead and some things that would hinder sunlight from coming in. And when they're done, it creates a brand new harvest. You know, when we allow the fire of God to purify us, it's amazing the fresh things that can grow in our spiritual walk when we get rid of some debris. Amen? When the Holy Spirit burns away some stuff, it's amazing the new things that can come to life in us. The Holy Spirit purifies our lives. The Holy Spirit warms just like fire. Oh, man, the Holy Spirit brings warmth. Light a fire out there and it's cold outside. Light a fire, get some warmth. As opposed to coldness of neglect or apathy. Or insincerity. As, as a, opposed to like a blandness. Put some hot sauce in it. Get it some life. Get it some fire. Speak some enthusiasm. Look at how 1 Thessalonians 5 and 19. The NIV worded this. It's interesting. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. One of the pictures of the Spirit is fire. Bringing warmth, enthusiasm, glow. Fire warms us. Fire stirs us. It, it speaks. It ignites us. It brings a glow to our faces. It excites. You know, we, 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 we use these terms. We say, man, that person was really on fire. And whether they were performing in sports or music or wherever, man, they were passionate. Man, they were zealous. They were on fire. As opposed to, man, they were really cool towards me. They were really cold towards me. You see, fire speaks of life and enthusiasm. In fact, in fact, John 16 and verse 14, John 16 and verse 14, one of the chief things the Holy Spirit does is not make us act weird, though sometimes we can act a little different when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us. But listen, Jesus said, He will glorify me. One of the key things the Holy Spirit does, He glorifies Jesus. He takes what is mine and declares it. He makes it known and real to you. But the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So think about it. If I'm filled and I'm strong and I'm being controlled by the Holy Spirit, then that Holy Spirit, He's going to prompt and move and motivate me to glorify Jesus. The person that's really strong in the Spirit of God will be strong in representing Jesus, in exalting Jesus, in loving Jesus. If the Spirit glorifies Jesus, and He is strong in me, and He is strong in you, then we will live lives that glorify the Lord in how we walk and how we talk and how we sing and how we carry about our business. The Holy Spirit warms just like fire. And when you get a fresh filling, typically you see a change in people's praise. You see a change in their witness. You see a change in their response to God when the Spirit is burning in their lives. Let's look at this one. Number three, the Holy Spirit's fire illuminates our thinking, our reasoning, our understanding. When we're filled with the Spirit, one thing the Holy Spirit does, He's our teacher. And He teaches us. He takes the written Word of God and He illuminates it and helps us to understand it, appreciate it, and apply it. 
A person's love and understanding of the Word of God increases. Illumination. It's like the dimmer switches. Amen? The more the Spirit you get, there's a little brighter illumination. There's a little greater understanding. The Word of God. You don't walk in so much confusion and deception when you walk full of the Spirit of God because He quickens our minds to understand the Word and apply the Word and believe the Word. You study the written Word and it keeps a person from stumbling and being confused. Greater insight. Greater understanding. Sometimes a fresh filling gives you a stronger bulb. So when you open up that Word of God, you understand it better. You can apply it better. You love it more. Look at John 16, 13. John 16 and 13. How He says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now we know in John 17, He said, Thy Word is truth. Jesus said, Father, glorify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. So he's not talking about Holy Spirit giving us some crazy revelation. People come with nonsense. He's saying he's going to help you understand that book. He's going to help you love that book. He's going to help you to begin to understand what you're reading and live out what you have read. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So we talk about being filled with Spirit. We're not just talking about falling down and jumping up and down, though you can praise God and be enthusiastic in, in the proper place. We're talking about the moving of the Holy Spirit. We talk about fresh fire. I'm saying there's a fire in our life that, that gets me a little more passionate and enthusiastic about the God I serve, about the Savior that died for me. It gives me a greater love for His Word and understanding of that Word. It gives me insight into that Word. You don't have to know, have 25 degrees, but if you have the Holy Spirit, you can read your Bible and have understanding and application and walk in it like you've never walked before. The Holy Spirit will keep us pure from all the grime of this world that just tags onto us. You can't escape it living in a fallen world. But when we stay full of the Holy Spirit, like a fire consumes, He keeps us pure. One more thing, the Holy Spirit, He energizes or gives a person power to live this life, to fight the good fight of faith. Acts 1 and 8, Jesus said, and you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we all know fire generates power. Fire is what gives power to drive things and to run things. And we learn from the Bible that once I receive this power from God, then it's up to me to fan it into flame, to stir it up, and to keep it burning. That's what we learn. We learn from the Word of God that once God's Spirit fills me, it's up to me now to throw on that log of prayer and throw on that log of Scripture and throw on that log of praise and throw on that log of gathering together to encourage one another and come to God's house. We're going to close it here. The fire fell. The fire fell. And our gospel answers by fire. But we recognize fire as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I want to keep the fire burning on the altar of my heart. Amen? If I'm going to do what God's called me to do in life, I've got to keep this fire burning. And I've got to recognize how does the Holy Spirit want to work. And these are some of the ways He desires to work in us. But I want to do my part to stay full of the fire and passion of God. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to have our prayer. This time begins to slip away from us. Child of God, don't neglect your altar. Child of God, develop the good habit of an altar time with God each day. Presenting worship and prayer and the Word of God. Amen? And in that place, you enter into that place, you'll get a fresh filling and you can walk out of that and go represent God throughout your day. Just like the priest of old. They draw near to receive, to offer, to receive. Then they walk out and they minister to people just like we do. All right? And if somehow you're listening and you're not right with God, 
Just being sorry about it's not good enough. Just having a, a godly sor- an ungodly sorrow is not good enough. But if you really mean business with God, then there'll be a removing and there'll be a rearranging. If you don't do that, you'll never last. Remove the things that grieve Him. Remove the things that are incompatible with walking with Him and rearrange things so that your life is now in divine order that the blessing can flow and continue. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we love You so much. We thank You, Lord. And we pray, Father, may the fire of Your Holy Spirit fall afresh and work powerfully in each one of our lives. Help us to be men and women that practice drawing near and communing with You. Lord, I ask You help us to stay strong and filled in living under the influence of Your Spirit always. Now, Lord, I pray for those that are here. Please heal those that are hurting. Lord, You know every need. If someone here needs a physical touch, Father, in the name of Jesus, touch them with Your healing power. Father, in Jesus' name, touch Your people with Your healing power. Father, I pray for those that are thirsty and yearn for a fresh drink. Father, refresh the weary. Let them leave here revived and refreshed and ready to take on a new week. And Lord, give wisdom to your people that every decision they make this week, they'll make it with the mind of Christ and it'll be accurate and it'll be blessed. Now, Father, use them. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you on Wednesday.